Hey everybody, welcome back to Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, not joined today by Michael. He's on uh, vacation in Japan right now, but uh, I'm sure he'll be listening in and, and wishing he was part of this discussion. Now today, we're, we've got some very special guests, uh, people that, that I work with, and um, we're going to be tying into the theme that we've been discussing over the past couple of episodes with Michael and I discussing stuff where we're going through code design and architecture, writing testable code for ML uh, projects, and also the pursuit of simplicity in design and implementation of those projects, gathering you know pro project requirements for ML use cases. And then in our last episode that we recovered, we recorded, we were talking about Heilmeier's catechism and about how that's used to define project requirements for complex software feature improvements and how to define projects in general like that. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. The guests today, uh, before I introduce them, uh, are very familiar with these topics and currently work on both sides of the house with respect to building stuff uh, that a lot of people use, uh, a shocking number of people use, and helping to design, like design the product roadmap and what features need to be built. Uh, so we'd like to, you know, ask to get them on the show to talk about how this is done at one of the largest SaaS companies out there. Yeah. So my first guest today, uh, Corey Zumar, he's the technical lead for the ML open source software team uh, at Databricks, and he's the lead maintainer of MLflow. Uh, anybody that's ever interacted with MLflow on GitHub or uh, seen notifications about that software suite has definitely heard his name. Uh, and he's also been on the show before. And we've also got Ahmed Bilal, who's the Senior Product Manager for MLOps Tooling and Infrastructure at Databricks. And uh, if you guys could, could both uh, introduce yourself a little bit more than just your names and titles. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me back, Ben. Really appreciate it. Uh, so, hi, everyone. I'm Corey. As Ben said, I'm a tech lead and software engineer. I work primarily on the open source MLflow platform. Been doing this for a little over four years now. And man, the time has flown. It's uh, been really fun kind of working with a, an open source community. We've built up you know, more than 500 external contributors. We have thousands of organizations using the tool. And you know, when I started working on this with a team of about seven or eight people, it, uh, it consisted of a few core components that integrated with a few libraries. And since then, it's, it's ballooned in a very principled way and, and grown quickly into five different components that standardize the end-to-end -end machine learning lifecycle and uh, the thousands of, of organizations, like I said, find it extremely useful. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, I, I get to work closely with Ben, get to work closely with Bilal, which is an amazing opportunity. And I look forward to doing this for a long time. Yeah, thanks, Ben, for having us. So yeah, I go by Bilal. I'm a product manager on the MLOps tooling here at Databricks, which includes like, you know, MLflow. And that's, you know, honestly, like sort of the best part of like, you know, 
of, of my role, like being able to like, you know, talk to sort of the diverse community of like, you know, ML practitioners that are using MLflow and then being able to like, you know, get their data and being able to like, you know, continuously improve the product. Prior to, I've been doing this thing now for like almost a year here at Databricks. Prior to Databricks, I was at GitHub working on GitHub Actions. And before that, I was, you know, at Microsoft also working, uh, you know, on Azure DevOps. You know, in fact, sort of like all of my career has been working with developers, like, you know, building developer tools. So, uh, you know, that's something which I am you know, really passionate about and excited about. And again, yeah, I mean, looking forward to sort of like this conversation, Ben. Talk about moving from one rock star project to another. I mean, we use GitHub Actions uh, pr pretty extensively, and that product is absolutely fantastic. And then you're coming over to Databricks and working with RML Ops tooling and, and you know, setting the, the roadmap for that. It, it's great. So one of the reasons that we're, we're all chatting today here together is uh, a big release, a big milestone that happened. Uh, recently with MLflow. And uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, Corey, but if you want to you know, talk about what, what just happened this past week. Sure. And steal away. Please chime in. But uh, really excited to announce the release of MLflow 2.0. It's been in the works now with Databricks, with other community members and other key stakeholders and maintainers for about six months. And we're extremely excited to present a whole host of useful features and tasteful changes and patches to the platform. So I'd like to just walk through a few of those and, and hopefully build up some excitement, then I'll tell you how to get started. Uh, so first and foremost, MLflow 2.0 is an opportunity for us to introduce MLflow recipes, which was formerly MLflow pipelines. We've added several key elements to recipes, including AutoML support, support for hyperparameter tuning, classification model development, which is a critical ask for most of our community and users, and improved data profiling. Now, people might be asking kind of why the name change. We wanted to underscore that Recipes focuses on data science workflows for developing high-quality models that are ready for production, and that that's the domain within a very wide space of MLOps that we'll be focusing on. So we hope that MLflow Recipes and MLflow 2.0 creates a lot of joy and rapidly accelerates your model development. We've also done a whole bunch of other work. So from a UI perspective, we've overhauled the MLflow experiment page. You'll find that we've streamlined a lot of the functionality around search, filtering, and ordering. We've also created a run pinning feature, which is something the community has asked for for a while now. If you find good runs during your experimentation, one day you can pin them to the top of that table and then as you continue to experiment for subsequent days, weeks, or months, you can be confident that you have a reference to those most important runs as your experimentation progresses, which is extremely important because it can take a long time to build a good model. Beyond the UI, we've also consolidated a lot of our APIs throughout MLflow tracking and the model registry. You'll find that we now have a slimmed down version of APIs for fetching experiments, fetching runs, reducing kind of a lot of duplication and, and confusion in user workflows. Finally, we've modernized a lot of our integrations with the ML ecosystem. First and foremost, the MLflow Evaluate API has been stabilized. Uh, this API provides a single line of code that you can use to produce a whole comprehensive performance report for any given model. It also produces explainability insights, like feature importance, plots, 
And all of this gets logged to MLflow tracking. And we'd like to highlight this as part of the ML ecosystem because you can literally plug in any MLflow model, which means that you can effectively evaluate any model in the ML ecosystem using the single line of code. It's extremely powerful. And we've also overhauled the integration between MLflow and TensorFlow and MLflow and Keras. We've created a consolidated model flavor and we've added support for TensorFlow core models. This is something the community has asked for for a long time and we're excited to deliver. Now, how can you get started? The easiest way is to go to mlflow.org. You'll see a nice big blue banner as well as a news announcement. It'll provide a whole detailed report of what's changed. You can do an in-depth walkthrough by checking out our blog post. And then we provide a download link. So if this is your first time using MLflow and you happen to be listening to this, you want to get started. You can check out that download link. It's going to take you to PyPy where you can install MLflow. If this isn't your first rodeo, you can uh, pip install upgrade MLflow and fetch that latest version. Should be really easy and smooth to migrate. And we're encouraging everybody to give that a shot. We'd love to hear your feedback on MLflow 2.0. And then as Ben pointed out, uh, MLflow 2.0 is, is not the end of the road here. So we're encouraging our community to make and continue to make contributions to the MLflow open source project. You can check out our contributing guide on the MLflow GitHub repository. It'll tell you everything you need to know about how to get started. In fact, Ben personally spent a lot of time trying to make sure that uh, it's a smooth development experience. He, he built out a whole suite of developer tools. You can run a single script, install everything you need in order to get started with making contributions. And as far as what to contribute, we have been curating our GitHub issues page. If you access the GitHub issues, and this is your first contribution, we recommend searching for any issue with the label good first issue. And all of those are watched very closely by maintainers and will help you every step of the way from ideation to pull request to merge. We also have a public-facing roadmap, which you can find in the same location. And it contains a bunch of features, examples, and documentation improvements that we're really excited to help you make. And with that, I think I've been talking for a few minutes now. But uh, <laughs> check out MLflow 2.0, make some contributions, let us know what you think. Excited to hear from you. Yeah, couldn't have, couldn't have summarized better about the release. And... It, I mean, the thing to double down on with this is unlike a lot of the the software that we talk about on this show, which is focused more on on the data science community and, and people using applied ML to solve problems in their companies or organizations, open source software is different. And we've mentioned it on the show before about it really is that community effort. And when we're talking about a tool that's what do we have, like 13 million downloads a month now or something? It's some astronomical number. Uh, setting aside CI and forks and updates, that's still a, a ludicrous number of people are downloading this software as part of their, their development stack and their production stack. Um, but with so many users and so many capable people out there who want to make a tool better, and that's the, the beauty of open source is everybody can contribute. When we're talking about so many users using a tool collectively. There's a lot of ideas that get generated. A lot of a lot of people have a, a lot, of, lot of ideas, highly opinionated ideas when you're talking about a tool that is so central and core to somebody's, you know, livelihood. It's like what makes their job easier every day. So Bilal, when you're talking about looking at ideas that come from 
community or customers or even internally. You know, we have a, a lot of ideas that come internally at Databricks for, for MLflow. How do you sift through all of that stuff and figure out, okay, this is the direction that we need to go in, or this is the vision that we need to adhere to? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, Ben. And yes, I mean, I think the community has been awesome. I mean, you know, generating a lot, lot, lot of ideas. I think so for us, like, you know, uh, a lot of this is about like, you know, understanding sort of what the bottleneck is for customers to sort of like, you know, do ML or to scale their like, you know, uh, ML deployments. And so generally though, the process that we have been following here at Databricks is taking a very like, you know, hypothesis driven, like, you know, sort of approach. So uh, a lot of the community and a lot of the people in, internally have like a lot of ideas on how we can go about and solve like a particular problem. And so we would go ahead and like, you know, sort of write down these hypotheses down. Uh, and then the other thing that we want to do once you have written down this hypothesis is to like, you know, talk to basically as many customers as we can, like, you know, in, in the open source world, in, in the enterprise space. The goal really here is to like, you know, immerse ourselves in in the user's world and understand like, you know, what the really struggle is. Uh, and so once you have like written out your hypothesis, you getting yourself immersed, you can quickly like, you know, validate, prove or disprove those hypotheses. Uh, and that is like, you know, I feel like, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very critical. Uh, and I think that sometimes when you write your hypothesis and when you're doing these customer interviews, you want to be also very careful that you don't like, you know, bias, you know, your uh, audience into like a certain solution. Um, so I think key really here is to make sure like, you know, you write down your, your questions or hypothesis and make them as neutral as possible. Like whenever we, I mean, I and other people like at Arabics, like, you know, do these customer interviews to, uh, to prove or disprove this hypothesis, we, we always make sure like, you know, we bring like other folks with us so that, you know, um, uh, you know, we, we do this in, in a very neutral environment. Uh, but so, yeah, so really the first phase is like, you know, get more data um, based on um, what what the ideas of customers have been telling us and prove and disprove those like, you know, hypothesis. Uh, the other thing that we do is that, you know, once we have like some data points, it's like you really need to prioritize those. And again, there are a lot of like, you know, frameworks out there, but, you know, we just ask like, you know, very simple questions, uh, you know, is this like, you know, really um, solving a specific pain point, you know, is this like, you know, helping sort of our target, you know, user base, um, uh, you know, the, the numbers adds up, like, you know, if we do this thing, would we see like, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, uh, like, a, you know, adoption, um, uh, is it like, you know, if we don't do this thing, would we regret it? Like, you know, so those sort of things, uh, uh, we do that. And once we have like, try like, you know, figured out, prioritized it, then I think the next step is to really like, you know, uh, figure out, ideate and see like what are the possible ways to implement it. Uh, I think this is the, this is the, an area which probably does not take a lot of time. I think once we have like nailed down, like, you know, this is the, what the problem is, like, this is what we need to do. Uh, I feel, you know, I think the, the database engineering team has been, and the, the community itself has been awesome in like, you know, you know, implementing the solution. Um, but like, even when we are implementing it, we want to make sure like we do it in phases. We want to like, you know, get something out very quickly, like, you know, and then ideate through it, 
Uh, we did that with like, you know, ML flow pipelines, which is now like named as recipes. We got like something like a bare version of the product out there, talked to a lot of people, got a lot of like kind of useful feedback. And then we were able to take that feedback and, you know, uh, iterate and, you know, create like a better product. And we'll keep on doing that thing for for recipes and for like other pieces of like ML flow. So, so yeah, I mean, really at the higher level, it's about really learning and understanding, you know, the 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 space, defining the problem, and then you know, ideating quickly and testing the prototypes. Yeah, I really like that that idea of a data driven approach. And for listeners coming from the the other side of the house, you know, using tools like this, you can also take that approach to your own project work internally to a company you know you have customers as a data science team or as an ml engineering team and sometimes you're getting ideas from people saying hey we should build this thing or we should use ai to do this thing not all those ideas are going to be great or useful or worth your time they could be super expensive uh, to develop but listening to people talking about what are their pain points, and then converting those those generalized ideas into testable hypotheses, where you could say, "Let's do a, a really quick, simple experiment here and see does this actually do what we think it's going to do?" Instead of dumping tons of resources at something which is a, an unknown quantity. So, on that note, with with feature ideas, when you know, we look at the issue board daily, sometimes multiple times a day, um, depending on how busy things are. And sometimes we get that that little block at the top at the beginning of a subject line, bracket, FR, bracket. And sometimes that's delightful to see, like, oh, this is going to be cool. Somebody's got this great idea. And sometimes it's, it's something that you know you're going to have to spend a little bit of time responding to and really thinking through. So what the one that, way that I think of feature request ideas or ideas that come from a community or users is it's like people trying to describe their their favorite meal. So you can get that that request or description of a favorite meal of somebody saying, yeah, I like pizza. Uh, if I had an ideal dinner, it would be a pizza. And then another person who's describing that exact same thing, say, they could say, well, I want this natural wood-fired pizza that comes from Una Pizza Napolitana in New York just before the dinner rush on a Thursday night. That's when the, the cooks are, are least busy and, you know, the, the farm delivers all the fresh produce uh, two hours before. So I know that's like the perfect meal. So you get this overly specific thing that's just for that one person versus that generalized description of something. So how do you navigate that, Corey, when you're, you're looking at those two different aspects? Or and what's your ideal state at the end? It's a wonderful question. And I think Bilal kind of laid out the reverse pattern in terms of ideating on a new feature from first principles. Like before you have a feature, you have hypo hypotheses. And you go and you test those hypotheses, you iterate on them, you, you move forward that way. I think when you're managing a community and you're looking at feature requests, you have to go through the reverse process. You have to work with that person who filed the feature request and you have to spend some time, like you said, and sit down yourself and think about 
what were the set of hypotheses or the set of principles that led this person to developing this feature request, or in some cases to leaning in and already writing code. And you have to, at some point, peel back the layers of that onion in order to understand whether, and often there are, some nuggets of generalized benefit for an entire community in what might otherwise look like some really specific piece of functionality for somebody's use case. And I, I think oftentimes our community members are very receptive to that process. I'll typically start by asking a few probing questions after feeling like I have an understanding of what the particular feature is that try to move in that direction. And usually there's some back and forth over a period of days or even weeks until we can identify that common layer upon which to build. And I think it leads to some pretty good results. I would imagine that a lot of our contributors aren't always thinking about it from a perspective of, hey, I want to make this contribution. What are my hypotheses that my contribution uh, is addressing in a particular way? But after these discussions, oftentimes I find that the dialogue has, has moved successfully in, in that direction, that we're, we're talking more about users and general workflows and principles for a large community. And, and that's really great. And I think we've had a lot of success with it. Ben, I'd be curious to hear more about your experience in that regard. Yeah, I was going to make a anecdotal comment about observations that I've made from seeing you interact with certain community members over a period of time. You can search in GitHub, of course, of like contrib contributions by a particular user over time. And then you see, like, oh, this person's really good with their, their commits. You know, I just reviewed a PR that they filed because they filed an issue for a feature request that was really well done. And, and then they, they select the box saying, yeah, I'd be willing to contribute this. I'm like, sweet. Look at, you know, it's the easiest one to reply to in an issue. It's like, looking forward to your PR. Thank you so much. And then you look at the PR and you're like, huh, there's no way that, you know, you look the person up stealthily. You're like, where does this person work? You're like, they don't work for a SaaS company. They work for like, they're using this tool uh, and they're not reselling it or, or anything like that. And you're like, there's no way that this company needs this feature that they just implemented or that this por portion of this that they just implemented. This person went out of their way without any feedback from maintainers and built it anyway. And uh, whenever I see that, I'm like, huh, where did that altruism come from? And you look back through the history of somebody's commits. And a lot of times you see you interacting with them of like describing the process that you just described. of Like, hey, let's generalize this. Let's make it good for this tool. So my big question to both of you is, do you think that the principle of open source software development adds an aspect of altruism amongst the entire industry? Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people 
uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll, we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on gather town. And so after the, the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to gather town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and, and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. I can start there. And if you don't mind, Bilal, and uh, curious to get your thoughts as somebody that focuses more heavily on the Databricks side of the product. But I, I would have an unequivocal, absolutely, response to that. That uh, you know, it's, I think, a lot of times easier for an organization to try to develop a solution that meets their requirements in the moment. And maybe sometimes there's some foresight that thinks about what are our requirements going to be in a year or two that is more common in larger organizations. But I think smaller, more nimble teams that just need to solve a problem design very specific tooling for very specific problems. And it takes a lot of effort to go through that process of first principles, hypotheses, and testing and iteration to arrive at something more general that candidly, a lot of individual organizations, if they're just trying to build something that solves a very niche niche problem, probably don't need to go through. That's not their mission. However, we noticed that, and this was kind of a motivation for MLflow in general, that a lot of organizations uh, don't always get that right for themselves the first time, or they're often better served by not doing any building at all and using things that people have carefully crafted, uh, like MLflow, to solve their problems. So I think there's an there's certainly an element of altruism in there in, in trying to build a platform that's useful for all organizations, not just one or two, and that continues to take on that burden year after year. It's, it's, a, it's a burden of love. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun uh, of understanding where has the ecosystem shifted? What do organizations and, and what do community members need? And how can we evolve the platform with that in order to make it happen? Uh, it's, it's what drives me every day. It's what I love about open source. And uh, the altruism in it, I suppose, is just a bonus. Yeah, I would just like, you know, 100% agree with Gordy. And we're just like, you know, like Bill on top of it is that I think when we are like, you know, looking into features uh, and thinking about like, you know, capabilities, we really don't like, you know, discriminate. Like, you know, in fact, I think, the ML flow core base is the same across like, you know, both like, you know, open source and like, you know, and, and the managed like, you know, Databricks, uh, you know, platform. Yes. I mean, the one that's running on Databricks, it's managed. So you don't have to worry about the infrastructure and all that sort of like, you know, stuff with security and permissions, but the core set of features are, are, are the same. And, and I talked to a lot of like engineering team as well. And, you know, the folks that are building like, you know, ML flow and a lot of them are just excited, you know, about sort of the impact that, you know, 
uh, th those engineering teams are making on sort of like you know ML ops, like you know, uh, um, you know, you know, outside even database. Uh, so so absolutely, I mean, I think if you really want to uh, build like you know a good software, you know, help like you know uh, ML practitioners or for that sake, you know, uh, any uh, practitioners in any discipline uh, to be successful. You just have to take like a sort of like an open source like you know approach because uh, that's sort of the way where where you can uh, sort of like you know get and interact with like you know a lot of the people that are out there. Um, so uh, so absolutely agree with what Corey said, and I think uh, that's also what drives me. You know the the, uh, the fact that you know we are like you know sort of trying to improve the lives of like so many people out there, like helping them do ML, which and protectionized ML, which remains like, you know, a, a, a pain point for uh, a lot of the organizations out there. Uh, and, and so I think so, so that, you know, uh, drive to like, you know, make, you know, uh, the lives of people better with like, you know, ML is, I think is as at the core of like, you know, uh, uh, you know, Databricks ML teams. So shifting gears just a little bit, we're talking about, let's say, not specifically ML flow but some other large new initiative. And a great idea comes comes along that has been vetted, like, asked all the right questions, collected the data, determined that, hey, this is, this is worthwhile doing. And, it, and the idea is still at the product phase. Like you're still formulating what this actually is going to look like in an iterative design fashion. Say, hey, here's our our phase one of what we would probably be building. Can you, can you talk a little bit, Bilal, about what the difference is between selling an idea like that to executive leadership versus selling that same idea to a, a development team? Are there differences or is it a completely different conversation? Very interesting question. I, I don't know if this, there are any differences. I feel like, you know, uh, it's, it's more or less the same. Uh, and that was like sort of like uh, uh, an insight for me as well, because I noticed that, you know, you have to sell your ideas internally a lot to your organization the same way you are like maybe selling your ideas to customers or to like, you know, to your external, uh, uh, to, to external teams. And so you still have to do your homework. You still have to like, you know, uh, make sure like you, you message your stories in a personal way, which is like, you know, you, you want to talk to and focus your ideas in a way like how that solution that you are building would help the executive team or the enterprises. Uh, you still have to like, you know, get your numbers, like, you know, get the data and all, all the, all, all the facts, like, you know, based your reasoning on, on, on data. And importantly, you have to like, you know, create like a story because numbers are good, but those, those are generally not memorable. So you want to like, you know, uh, tell your message in, in a story. Um, so I think, like, honestly, I feel like sometimes it's more difficult to like, you know, sell ideas internally to your executive team. And so, that, I mean, the thing that I've learned is that you just want to like go with that framing that you have to sell it and you have to do your homework and you have to approach it in in a way that people will not buy your ideas, like, you know, in, in, you know, instantaneously, you have to like, you know, work hard to be able to convince them. Um, so 
yeah, that's kind of like my take on it. I would love to get, you know, Corey's and even like, you know, Ben take, like, you know, you guys have been also like, you know, in in a similar board. So we'll have to like, you know, understand like, you know, what have you seen and what have your experience been at? Definitely. One additional bit of color that I think I'd like to, to add here that might draw a distinction between selling to developers and selling to executives. So I think in some cases they're very aligned, can be time scale. So I think that a lot of times developers are looking for a tool that will meet their needs somewhat quickly, they're, which is understandable. There are parts of, of organizations or projects that are blocked on something. Oftentimes they come to us because things aren't going well. They have a pattern of, of use, they have a, a tool set, and it's just not working out for them. And their executives or their sort of academic research partners, whoever they're working with, are pushing for some solution by some deadline. We all want to get that paper published. We all want to ship that product. Uh, so whereas executives, they often have the, the luxury of thinking about how does a platform unfold over a period of many months or, or even years? Obviously, there's still a bias towards execution and making sure that we get useful products in the hands of, of customers and, and users quickly. But I, I think that sometimes trying to sell a vision, uh, trying to sell something that is the first critical step of three or four steps directly to developers is, is tricky. Uh, it, it's hard. You have to provide a, a lot of enticing capabilities right out of the gate to get people to bite, even if the ultimate goal is to build towards something that might look a whole lot larger or even look somewhat different over a one or two year time scale. So I think that part of it's tricky. Yeah. And the only other thing that I would add from looking at it from both sides, not from the executive side, but from the, uh, the side of customers looking at a potential product versus because uh, that's what I used to do at Databricks is interact with customers all day, every day. And they, I would hear their opinions of Databricks products that were being built or open source packages that Databricks community you know, contributes to. And usually it's delight. People are like, oh, this is amazing. I hope that the next phase of this is going to be X. They're like, yeah, I'll, I'll let the product team know. You know, it's awesome that you enjoy this so much. And when you hear from that perspective at first, you think, huh, I wonder, like, I heard this, this request from, you know, six different customers of like, they, they all want this thing. And I didn't lead them down that questioning path. Is this something that was so like obvious that should have been developed? Um, but then you talk to four other customers and they're like, yeah, we don't care at all about that. Or we don't need that. We need this other thing. And you start getting this, you know, this understanding of like, oh, yeah, yeah, like products got a really hard job, like trying to figure out what, what to build here. I feel for them. And then after working with engineering, uh, seeing it from the other side, it's not more, it's not what you assume of like, oh, maybe the engineer said that this is just so, this is complicated. We don't want to build that or, you know, we don't, we don't think that's important. I've never really seen that or even an attitude at all in engineering of like, oh, we don't want to build that. It's, it seems like the TLs, technical leads, um, in teams are more, more like stagecoach drivers trying to hold back an excited team of horses. Like Everybody just wants to build cool stuff. And it's more from the management side, it's more like, hey, we just need to focus them on on things 
Because if we said, hey, build whatever you want, then so many things would get built. Probably not in a way that meets all of the, the you know customer requirements, but everybody's so eager to build uh, in engineering and data breaks. It's, it's very interesting climate. Yeah, I think the other thing, and I might have like a little bit misinterpreted your question, uh, but it's like, you know, adding um, to, to what you just said is like, one thing I noticed is like, you know, with, with development developers and sell, like, you know, with selling your idea to development team, you have to also like, you know, just tell them like, you know, like just walk through what the product is doing. Like, you know, as compared to like with executives, you have to maybe a little bit tell them like, you know, what the value prop is. So developers really appreciate like, you know, how the product under the hood, like, you know, looks like without like, you know, um, you don't have to try too hard to sell the sort of the sort of the unique selling proposition. They will like, fig, you know, themselves figure it out. Like, you know, once they, once they understand like what the, like how the product is working. Um, so uh, what versus with like, you know, enterprises, you have to like clearly and very delineate, like, you know, this is the USB is, this is the value prop is, um, and so that's something which I've like, you know, figured out, like, you know, when, when talking to developers with respect to like, you know, the enterprise uh, executives. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right? Where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. Well, we'll cover all of it, okay? And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on some thing for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current, keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The, the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. So to follow on on the this theme, it's probably our, our last little discussion point uh, that I was really curious about. Um, when building large features, so let's say we sell the dev team on something, we sell all the executives on, on something, internally at Databricks. And everybody's all set with this vision. Like, hey, this is this is a two-year roadmap item. 
that we're going all in. We're creating epics, up, you know, within epics of here's the, the development process of this. How do you go about from the engineering side, Corey, uh, breaking that up, chunking that work up, and working with product to make sure that you're releasing just enough at just the right time to do that, you know, hypothesis testing, data collection, and then pivoting if needed. Could you explain the process that you use to like look at a massive project and say, okay, here's where, here's as much as we're going to do. Definitely. So it's all very requirements driven. I think first and foremost, you have to have leadership and, and people organizing efforts on the engineering side that are really in tune with product. They have to see eye to eye on the requirements. So with a whole big list of, of potential customer requirements and hypotheses that you want to test, you have to rank them. And you have to be very aggressive with what you think matters in the immediate term and what you think matters in the medium or long term. And then you have to make sure that everybody agrees on that, engineering, product, executive level, and that you retest and, and check in on that set of requirements as you move through the project. I think a lot of times there's this impetus or this motivation to try to build in features like uh, a whole bunch of external library support for all sorts of different machine learning frameworks or to build in integrations with orchestration tools. I want to I want to take this workflow that we're trying to enable developers to run on their laptop and I want them to you know, be able to run it on all sorts of orchestration engines, Airflow, Kubernetes clusters, all this stuff. And people, people ask for it sometimes in the community. We'll, we'll put something out initially, and, and they'll ask us for that. And that, that should be the, the kind of signal that, uh, that we're looking at. It's once we've put something out there, and we've internally identified that, hey, we, this is something we could build, but we want to hold off. And then when we hear it from, from our customers, from the community, that's when we pounce, and, and we go in and we build it. I, I think there's a, a very intentional restraint to the process initially, which is uh, identify as much surface as we can, but given those requirements, only ship uh, what's minimally, really minimally necessary and only add once there's a, a concrete ask. I think that keeps us focused. Otherwise, if you don't have any concrete asks in a whole bunch of areas, you're certainly going to get them in other places. And if you just let engineering teams run wild and build whatever they want, the concrete asks that you're getting from users and, and customers often fall by the wayside. Uh, we've seen that happen, I think, when we were an earlier project and when Databricks was an earlier company. Uh, so I, I think it's just kind of ruthless minimalism in, in a lot of ways, especially early on. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think this is especially tricky when you're doing like, you know, zero to one products where you don't even have the product market fit, right? So you have like some set of like really core assumptions. And I think what you want to do is just to do the minimal amount of work to test those assumptions. Like what's the, like, you know, just one couple of few things that you can like release and like get enough data to test some of the core assumptions you have. And then once you have tested those, then you like, you know, build on, 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 on top of those. hundred percent, you know, agree with like, you know, this concept of like shipping the minimal thing that you can do, writing the least amount of like, you know, software lines. To, to to validate at least your your assumptions, uh, and then once you have like some product market fit, then you can like you know go in and like you know start like you know putting more resources and like you know at uh, scaling your products. And then that iterative process 
uh, is something that never really ends with this software development paradigm. It's like, as you said at the start of the episode, Corey, you know, hey, 2.0 is not the end. Uh, ML flow, who knows? Maybe we'll get to 17.0. Uh, with the two two year de- release development cycle uh, between major releases, you know that process of we release a, like a small part of something, collect feedback from the community, listen to their complaints, you know, market as experimental. Be like, hey, stuff might not work the way that you really want it to yet, but we're going to listen to you and we're going to work with you. And I just wanted to say that. In addition to that, that's also the internal process. So, and for you know, listeners that are out there that are wondering how to apply something like this to an ML project within their company, you can do that with with any project really. Uh, even if it's something that it's a model for an internal team, it's not something that's customer facing. You should be thinking about it in that way. Start small, start simple, collect feedback and data, make adjustments. That's why in previous episodes, we've been talking about writing clean code, writing modular code, writing testable code, because if you're following this development process of iterating rapidly and evaluating at each stage of a a potential release, the cleaner your code base is, the cleaner your processes are around making changes and getting buy-in and that collective process, you know, decisions that are made of, should we develop this feature? Should we not? How should we implement this feature at every step of that process within Databricks, at least? uh, That's a community decision. It's not one person saying, we're building this. This is what it's going to be like. Go do it. Uh, Just just yesterday, we were filing, you know, requests for people to evaluate small changes uh, that we're we're doing. And that goes out to dozens of people who all provide feedback. We make adaptations based on their their knowledge, their wisdom, and their perspective, and then come to a consensus point of saying, okay, yes, this is what we want to do. And in internal ML projects, you can do the exact same thing. Listen to your internal customers, gather feedback from them, and build iteratively. Uh, don't, don't do the waterfall approach, uh, which we've talked about on many episodes. Uh, you don't wait until you, you know you're done with the best trained model that's ideal for the situation. And Michael and I and many guests in the past have have walked through how that can blow up in your face. Um, so advice, listen to how how we were talking through how, how MLflow is developed um, and take of it what you can. So hey, thanks so much, uh, both of you for coming on talking about, you know, a quick recap of what we talked about. Uh, MLflow 2.0 is out. Uh, it's, it's it. out ready for testing. Yeah. Try it out. Uh, let us know if it's broken. Um, hopefully it's not. If you have great ideas on things to contribute, uh, please let the team know. Uh, and that doesn't just go for MLflow. You're using an open source package out there somewhere and there's a community around it. And there's something that you're just like, man, I bet other people would really get a benefit out of this idea. Feel free to post it. That's what the issues board is for. Uh, most most people contributing to open source, as we were talking about, um, with altruism. Pe- people that contribute to open source just want to make the world a better place in the way that they can. Uh, that's giving away their time for free so that other people can can build awesome things or you know, do something great for the, the world. That's why we do it. Um, so 
help people out, share your ideas, no ideas, dumb idea, uh, just post it, start a conversation. And then uh, I just wanted to thank both of you for running through a lot of this, you know, sort of not frequently talked about sorts of things about how engineering and product work together to build great things together and what those processes look like and how to be data-driven in, in that process. So is there anything else that, that either of you would want to share uh, in closing? Well, I've already called out the MLflow 2.0. Third time's a charm. Please let us know how it's going. Uh, really want the feedback, but I just wanted to say that, you know, Ben, Bilal, it's a pleasure working with you closely on the product and the engineering sense. Uh, Excited to keep building. Yeah, likewise, totally, yeah. All right, so thank you, Corey. Thank you, Bilal. And you can catch us next week on our next uh, scheduled recording. And until then, I've been your host, Ben Wilson, and I'll see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.